What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, and I'm sitting with my hat down, cross town, living like a rock star. Dave's about to spend money on his brand new guitar. What's going on, man? Uh, what an opportunistic ploy by Billy Ray Cyrus, but it was successful. Good for him and good for Lil Nas X. I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. That song was everywhere yeah. this weekend. Memes, everything about it was amazing. Yeah, just incredible. Billy Ray Cyrus, what a guy. And, uh, you know, if, if you find yourself thinking, man, Billy Ray Cyrus jumping on a trek with Lil Nas X, well, you're probably a week late to the discussion. You should go back and listen to our video on that. You can get all these videos by subscribing to our YouTube channel or going to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and catching the pod any way you can. And once you listen, give us that five-star reading and review and share us with friends. We appreciate it. We got lots to talk about today. Game of Thrones, back after a year off, so we got to preview that. We also had the return of Killing Eve, a couple of albums, and Zachary Levi, our swole-grown son <laughs> in Shazam. Yo, he was, he was yoked for that. But why don't we start off today with Blackpink. Kill This Love, their second EP, Jisoo, Jenny, is it Rosé or Rose? Is Not sure. I'm yeah, going to say Rosé because it sounds better. I'm going to say Rosé. Sounds <laughs> a lot better. <laughs> yeah. The all-female K-pop group kind of, uh, you know, we did a, a breakout when BTS dropped their most recent album back a couple months ago about K-pop, and we talked about Blackpink as one of the bands that was kind of like a manufactured band from the studios out there to try to create these these hip-hop or these groups, these pop groups that can gain some traction here in the United States. And Blackpink is one of the ones that's been pretty successful so far. If you want to listen to that video, you can check that out somewhere on our YouTube page. Search Nostalgia K-Pop. This EP, Kill This Love, man, I, I, I had some mixed feelings on this. On the one hand, I think that there's some really catchy and some really fun parts of it. And on the other hand, I felt myself feeling like, man, this is like the most generic Zed Tiesto Calvin Harris album with some really, really good sounding Korean pop singers over this. What did you think of uh, Kill This Love by Blackpink? Yeah, so for me, I ran back their Blackpink In Your Area album that came out in December 1st before I went to this EP. And that album really just captures all these other EPs and singles they had put out over the past like year and a half or so. And I really liked that album. It was like only 30 minutes long. I thought there was a lot of cool singles on there and a lot of catchy songs. And then going into Kill This Love, which is half as long, uh, and one of the songs is a remix, I was also not as not as enthused just because I was like, I just listened to all these like bangers from the, the, that album. And now this one, I mean, I heard them so you know, literally back to back. I don't know if I can really speak to how much growth there was. It kind of blends together. But apart from the title track, not much of it stood out to me, but when I'm looking at them as a whole, I still think there's a lot to uh, like and see for future success. But uh, yeah, I, I was a little underwhelmed. Yeah, I actually was listening to their Arena Tour 2018 album that was on Spotify a little bit, just to kind of get a sense. They do some really great covers of songs. <laughs> actually, one of them was uh, a Christmas song that they were covering. I think it was Last Christmas or something like that, which I was like, I'm listening to a Christmas song covered by K-pop people on April 8th. So uh, it was it was a weird moment for me during my days in general. But there is a lot more to them, especially hearing them live was pretty cool. Um, and I feel like this album was almost like veering too much into American pop, you know, trying to be the most generic of generic American pop rather than adding you know really their own twist outside of speaking a foreign language on it i mean literally listening to the the first song on here um which is i believe the title track yeah kill this love which they actually released a music video for and has i think last time i checked over 130 million views today which is crazy because they just dropped it i think last week it's the fastest music video to 100 million views in youtube history under three days and it was uh, the most watched in 24 hours, 56.7 million, which beat Thank You Next. So the Blinks, their their stands, their their fan army are uh, definitely powerful if they can set all these brand new streaming records for a group that is only just really getting big in the West. But listening to that song, I was like, man, I feel like I would hear this on like a side stage at Izu on like a Saturday afternoon. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I was just like, not what I expected to hear from this group. I think this just kind of speaks to them trying to 
find what's going to break them through here in American pop. The one song that stood out to me was Kick It, which I, just something about it stood out. I think they went a little bit more like toned down on that song, which I like. It's mm-hmm. like stripping it back a bit. But otherwise, yeah, it's, I don't think there's too much notable here. But I think this is leading up to an uh, album release sometime soon, I have to imagine. Yeah, that's what the talk is. And I'm again, because that, that first album in December was just a collection of previously released songs. So to hear something that's like a full-length album from them is probably really exciting for a lot of their fans. But, you know, Kill This Love, again, getting all this, these setting all these YouTube so- records, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big, bombastic song. A lot of their videos are like that, too, really bouncy. But I think you're right. I mean, trying to grasp Western audiences and try and catch on to be more mainstream sounds like it's what they're doing because i mean they've already mixed they mix korean and japanese there's a fair amount of english even on their their older songs already but i mean there's some clear hip-hop influence especially from there's some corny hip-hop flows on on their songs which is you know where that's coming from but considering do 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 which the remix is on the cp that that original song from uh like a year ago that's the most watched k-pop video ever it's like 747 million views it's better than anything bts has ever done in terms of views crazy that song like it's, it's a pretty like bad hook it's the title obviously you hear the remix so i think kill this love is like a step up in that regard in terms of making these like big like poppy singles but there's still a lot of room to grow and we'll see because yg entertainment they're like man their label has uh, in a bit of some hot water recently with some controversy with um taxes and also one of their artists is they had dropped one of their artists for recording Sexual acts without permission, obviously bad bad stuff going on. So, but it seems like y, YG is pushing Blackpink as their like premier act. So I'm curious to see like BTS just how big K-pop can really get here in the West in terms of like mainstream Billboard Hot 100 music. So we'll be seeing after that album's coming soon. Someone that's huge is Khalid. His uh, debut album, uh, American Teenager, was a uh, American I guess a surprise smash hit. American Teen, sorry. And Dave, do you know where he currently ranks on the Spotify monthly most played Fourth, artists? Fourth. 47 million monthly listeners. Crazy. Do you know who's ahead of him? Oh, I did. It's Ariana Grande's one. Um, yes. Not Drake. No. Fuck, I forget. Just tell me. I don't remember. J Balvin and Post Malone. Oh, oh it's Post Malone. Yeah. I, for- I, didn't- I wasn't going to guess J Balvin. That makes a lot of sense, though. Well, me, Ozuna would have made yeah. sense, too. Wow. Post Malone is crazy that he's that high. Yeah, and he's right ahead of Marshmallow, Selena Gomez, Calvin Harris, Drake, Sway Lee, and Sam Smith. That's the top ten. Crazy. It's only his second album. He's already in that stratosphere. I mean, Post Malone, also a newer artist. The fact that he's number three. Wait, wait. You say Sway Lee? Yeah, Sway Lee, number nine. Sunflower got him all the way up to number nine? That's crazy. Yeah. Holy shit. These streaming numbers, man. Wow. He's big. He's crazy big. He got really big really fast. It's nuts. Khalid. Yeah, and if I remember, I can't remember if we talked about American Teen, but we did. after listening to the album, I think he has an interesting voice, and like he's very vibey. Like he's the kind of guy you listen to. He has kind of like these lo-fi tunes behind him, and has this interesting inflection in the way he sings, and it all kind of flows together to make this really just nice like song to listen to. I feel like, and I felt like Free Spirit was a lot more the same, but where. American Teen, I think, really stood out and grabbed people, especially younger people, is that he was speaking about an experience that I think a lot of people related to, whereas Free Spirit is a little bit harder to access, and I think it has a lot of the difficulties that someone that blows up quickly has when they write a second album in terms of their material and their topics become a little bit less, I don't know, general. It's not as easy for people to connect with what they're talking about i mean it's a lot of being lonely you know feeling like you can't trust people on this album and that that makes it a little bit tougher of a listen at least i didn't find it as enjoyable but i still think there's a lot to like on here what what was your take on free spirit really first talked about khalid back on that sun city ep that came out in october and american teen that ep and now the second album in that whole time obviously as we mentioned he's a huge artist really quick i mean He's only just now 21 years old. He's only just starting his first arena tour. That's how quick he's gotten this big. But his biggest charting songs are actually all like features. East Side, the Benny Blanco Halls, you join. Uh, 1-800, the Logic song. Lovely, the Billie Eilish Lucy. And then Love Lies with Normani. Those are like his biggest hits. And then we have Location, Young, Dumb, and Broke, and Now Talk. So it, it's weird because I feel like he's actually better as a guest, like a less is more artist, because... 
all of his projects so far for me, I just feel like I fall into them and then I, I just kind of get lost because I think when he uses these moody beats and he has these kind of sleepy vocals, his voice doesn't like rise above them to like stand out enough. Like on this on this album, towards the end, like on that song 21, he actually changes his delivery for the first time in several tracks and like actually like jumpstarted my brain again. But I feel like uh, too many times on, on sequences on his projects, I just kind of slip in and out because it, it just gets way too moody. So I'm kind of on the camp now that I think he's a less is more artist and perhaps a little overrated. Not saying he's bad. I just think he, he's, he's like Sam Smith. He's not Frank Ocean, if that makes sense. Yeah, Frank Ocean is very inventive in his sound, though, where I, I don't think you could ever say that about Khalid. He seems to be very, you know, moody is the right word. I actually wrote down that. It's very, it's just mood music throughout. And I think he has this like melancholy to his voice and that, again, blends together so well with some of these songs. It almost feels indistinguishable at points, you know, in terms of where his voice ends and the the background beat that he's working with kind of goes together. But there were a few songs that stood out to me I thought were pretty interesting. I really liked the uh, the song with John Mayer, Out of My Head. I thought mm-hmm. that that song kind of stood out. It's kind of groovy, a little bit like disco-y with the, like the John Mayer soft rock touch that is like made for radio. But then you also got Paradise, which I, I really liked the funky reverberated guitar on that. He added a little spin to Alive, which has like the island drums in the background with it. And of course, Talk, I think, is the, the clear standout from this. And that song is just a clear bop. Shout out Disclosure. Oh, yeah. They keep killing it. Can't wait for their next album. So I, I think there's a lot to like on here, but 17 songs just seems like way too much. I also really like Right Back, similar to Talk, just this mm. really bouncy, poppy beat that he can easily rock on. He's talented enough to, to make these certified pop hits from that. But I think when he tries to get more introspective, and at least right now, the production choices, the vocal choices just kind of lose me. But when he has these more upbeat songs, like Talking Right Back, I'm right there. I think those songs are awesome. Yeah, he also worked with Portugal the Man's uh, producer on a couple of these songs, which I think is an interesting choice because I, I could hear Makes a sense. lot of that influence <laughs> on here, for sure. Uh, any last thoughts before we move on from Free Spirit? Again, I'm just curious to see the choices to come because, I mean, only second album, he's this massive artist, five Grammy noms already, 21 years old. What's next? Is he going to continue to devolve in this introspective stuff, or is he going to see the success of songs like Talk and just and, and all his collaborations and just continue to just be this mainstream pop force? You know, I, I could see either direction, so I'm just curious to see what happens next. But we'll we'll be hearing from him, no doubt about that. Yeah, he, he's a mammoth artist right now. We'll see if he keeps it up. A show, I think everybody was, I don't know about worried about, but interested to see if it could really keep going. It's Killing E Season 2. So Season 1, we talked about on our year-end lists. I believe it was like number two or number one for, for both of us. It was two for me. Yeah, so I think it was number three for me then. Killing Eve is a really interesting show. You know, you have Sandra O's established playing Eve, Jodie Comer playing uh, Villanelle, and it's it it really captured, I think, uh, the the zeitgeist or the interest of a lot of people at the time because it really balances humor with this drama and the story about these two people. You know, this uh, Villanelle, this murderous hit woman in you mm. know from russia and eve this american transplanted to london and trying to figure her out and just kind of how they become obsessed with each other and it really ended on this no and of course yeah phoebe waller bridge who created the show created fleabag just one of the premier showrunners right now who is at the helm then she leaves and season two uh kind of picks up right where season one left off and we're like hey you know is, is this new showrunner gonna be able to keep things going is this going to be uh, Emerald Fennell's like picking up right where things left off and se- seamless, or is there going to be some bumps? And I think, I think episode one kind of had a little bit of both. But give me your thoughts on Killing Eve season one, and then what you thought of the premiere. Reiterate past pods. I love season one. Obviously, I think it really stood out for its snappy, witty dialogue. A lot of which we can DNA of Fibula Bridge, of course. But two perfectly cast characters. But the show. The original conceit of it being a cat and mouse thriller is still present, but it's really about their relationship as characters. And as you mentioned, obsession, it it achieves way more in season one than you ever expect it to. You never really think it's going to even attempt to go there. But 
I was really blown away by. And it's funny because most people that watch the show felt that way as well. The audience literally doubled between the premiere and the finale. And uh, that was it was just on BBC America last year. Now AMC is simulcasting it also on AMC Prime. So, you know, the Walking Dead audience, the Better Call Saul audience, when you get more eyeballs on Killing Eve, and it was obviously just on Hulu the past season one. So a true word of mouth hit, which I think, again, is very well deserved because it's such a unique show. And this season two, as you mentioned, there were, I mean, maybe some of it was concern trolling, but we did just talk about this with Barry. It's like when you have this perfect uh, season, how do you keep this going, especially when conceit is something that doesn't sound sustainable with that cat and mouse thriller, the hunter be hunted kind of thing? I think I think season two, despite taking place 30 seconds later, the first the premiere, I think it just kind of like resets us, at least for the moment. I, I, it's tough to really glean where we're actually going from here. But it does sound like Villanelle and Sandra are still going to be circling each other, at least for now. So, but like season one established the stuff with Constantine and the Twelve. There's some overarching questions that they didn't even bother answering for now. So they'll be there. But I think right now it's still just about the the dialogue, the performances, the relationship between the two leads, the fashion. That's still all present. So all the main ingredients from season one are still here, at least in episode one. So I was pleased with the premiere. What about you? Yeah, no, I I thought the the premiere was good. I do think there were uh, some bumps, mostly in like how Villanelle kind of got from being stabbed to the hospital, and I think it's kind of like along the way. You know, some of it was a little unrealistic. Some of it, I don't know if it made total sense, but I think what's shown through was just her personality, and I think that's the most encouraging part about all of it is that. Emerald Fennell seems to really have a grasp on who these characters are. You know, Villanelle is at the, at one point childish and like a seven year old in a twenty eight year old body, and at the other time is this stone cold killer who will snap a child's neck, like yeah, uh, on a, a a bed. So it's a difficult character, I think, to totally get the tone right for. And there was it see that that part seems seamless to me. I think I think that it's really interesting to see how uh sandra O was in this episode she got a lot to work with in terms of like the ups and downs of her character after stabbing villanelle and kind of making sense of that and i thought she was fantastic and the the funny parts are still there you know whether it's sandra O saying i think i killed her and then the person's proposing to his girlfriend in front of her yep. or uh jody cummer when she's uh saying i am very funny like but with like the most deadpan face you've ever seen like it's it's perfect like that i love the, those moments of the show it's so that even if there were some bumps i think that there's enough here to feel really optimistic about the show moving forward yeah i'm, I'm with it i this is a show i like to evangelize for because despite its exponential growth throughout season one it's still a show that was really a critic's recommendation at the end of the day you know it wasn't a super populous show so mm-hmm. i really hope this amc bump that they're giving works out because i mean they already expressed confidence in the show, renewing it before season one started. But now we'll see how, how big the show can get. But I think it has a great chance because, again, Sandra O is a recognizable face on American television, very popular, very well liked. Mm-hmm. And Jodie Comer's performance is just so undeniable that I, I really hope the show can get super big because I think it deserves it. It's, it's that unique. It's that successful. Yeah, and I think as long as they have Owen and Comer uh, doing it, you know, basing it around their relationship makes sense i i could see comer not wanting to do this forever if only because i think she's going to be getting a lot bigger opportunities moving oh, yeah. forward but uh sandra oh seems like she could be a, a lasting piece if this ends up being a series that goes on for a couple more seasons why don't we move on to shazam though because man we have reviewed five after say five dc movies we've reviewed all of the dceu movies except for man of steel which came out before we did the pod. So at this point, it's what Wonder Woman, Batman vs Superman, Justice League, Aquaman, Suicide Squad. <laughs> Which actually, I found myself watching Suicide Squad on TV the other day, and it got to the really? point. Yeah, it, it just was on. I was like, yeah, let me give it a watch. And it got to the point where, um, what's his name, like the guy who climbs things or the knock guy or whatever, tries to get away, and R- Colonel Rick Flag like blows his head off or whatever, and I was just like, oh, okay, I'm out. You can't watch this anymore. It's just not for me. What's that guy's name? I can't remember. We'll look it up. Um, um, he's played by Adam Beach. Totally thankless, lankless part. Ripcord? No. <laughs> yes. Something like that. Is I'm going right? to look it up. But anyways, <laughs> Shazam. David Sandberg. 
from Annabelle Creation, Lights Out, at the helm here, got Zachary Levi, like we talked about earlier, looking swole in that Sazam suit. I wasn't so sure about this. I, when the trailers first came out, I think we were a little bit like, uh, this isn't looking so great. And then closer and closer we got, the tone seemed to be a little better and better. And then, Dave, 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Do you think this movie deserves to be that high? Yeah, no, I mean, I was in by the first trailer. I, I thought it looked looked pretty cool. Definitely inspired or reminds you of Ant-Man, even little Gardens in the Galaxy, just in terms of humor and the, the tone, the levity of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think this movie deserves uh, universal acclaim because I think it's pretty undeniably successful and achieves the goals it sets out. So thus getting all these positive reviews. Yeah, no, I um, I really liked it. And I think it, it's er- er- earning all this positive buzz for sure. It was Slipknot, by the way. Character yeah, it's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways. Yeah, you know. I was, I think, a little bit worried only because, one, Zachary Levi as a leading man, I wasn't totally sold on for a, a movie this size. But also, you know, you had him being so goofy in the trailer and Shazam being a, a superhero that I don't think many people are familiar with. I wasn't sure if this was going to be something where if this doesn't come out and is really, really good, if it's just going to completely flop. And it was, it was really good. And I think the part that I like most about it and similar to Wonder Woman and kind of some of the other things I think they've been trying to do even Aquaman to an extent is they the first part of these movies before they get to the part where it's like punching each other in the face seems like they they all try something which you got to give them credit for that and I think like you said this one had a very like Guardians just kind of like goofing around having fun type vibe to it and the more that they focused on what it meant for Billy Baston to be exploring what it means to be a superhero when you're actually like 14 years old inside this man's body was a lot more interesting than like, what's the name? Savannah's Dr. And, Shivana. Yeah, Dr. Shivana and the, the seven deadly sins kind of hanging out. That, that was a that was a bit of a tough hang at times for me. But your, your thoughts on that? I think ultimately this is probably one of the best if not the best third act that dcu's had because as you mentioned a lot of times even even the best of superhero movies like black panther like a lot of times the third act has to and wonder has to devolve into some kind of punching some kind of heavy cgi scene and yes we had that seven deadly sins but i think there's enough payoff in that third act specifically when uh all the other other siblings the foster siblings all get up shazam powers of their own Mm -hmm. um i think i think that really works but throughout the first two acts especially the movie is just really well paced and sets up payoffs it's funny i I think it just really executes on its premise and it's just really sharp you know Mm -hmm. and wonder woman its first two acts it's this great period piece it's also a great best female empowerment and wonder woman's fantastic in the beginning as well uh but shazam is super super meta and referencing that like batman superman exist in this universe but it's almost like they don't because nothing they did previously has any effect on shazam at all Mm -hmm. i think that's kind of been the takeaway in general about how where they've been going in terms of aquaman and now now shazam and next year with birds of prey the margo uh harley quinn film so having shazam just kind of exist on its own and on its own terms i think was a fantastic idea like we don't have to like, like think about the cameo, right? Like the cameo at the end, the the, the stinger scene. You have Superman there, obviously headless, because this is the DCU. They don't get to actually pull in their caps mm-hmm. and have Chris Evans cameo, right? Henry Cavill isn't in this cameo, but it doesn't really matter, right? Because Shazam was just cool for being Shazam, and that's kind of what I like most about it. It's just that it executes everything it sets out to do on its own. It's honestly really earnest, really fun movie. So, I mean, I I had a great time with it and didn't mind some of the weak points, like the villain, like the, the end, in a sense. Yeah, I also, I agree with pretty much everything you said. And I think, I think it had a really sweet story at the center of it, which, um, you know, something like Aquaman, for example, very superhero, you know, type story where, uh, you know, he's an orphan, trying to, like, find his mom and figure all that out. And it's just save his kingdom. Very big, which I actually think the the third act of that, at least the fight scenes that looked really cool being underwater. So Mm, I I didn't hate that one so much, but yeah, I I just really liked how Billy in this is still like so drawn to like be with his mom, but then just has that like 
real talk conversation with her and is like, ah, okay, well, now I'm ready to just go be Sam. Like, I thought that was handled really well. The pacing at times, I didn't I didn't like, like, I felt a little too slow at times and moving a little too quickly at times. But overall, this is a major win for DC. By far the most enjoyable DC film I think I've watched. I just had a, a really good time from start to finish pretty much with this. You know, even when it did kind of devolve into punching, like, you still had uh, Darla's, like, grown-up Shazam character with a lot of, like, one-liners and funny parts added into it. Uh, especially mm-hmm. liked when she, like, saves santa and it's like it's like oh it's really you and then like starts talking he's like what the hell and that that santa claus man like the most philly santa claus of all time (laughs) yeah there there was just a lot to like what were some standout moments or scenes for you yeah well honestly i think jack grazer who plays freddie really brings the movie together because it's his relationship with uh, with adult shazam Right, like I think that that that's like the winning formula, you know, that keeps the movie going. I think um, what's his name? Uh, a- a- Asher, Alex Asher, Angel Young Asher. Billy. He he he's okay. I think I think he's a bit bit of a one up performance. But Jack and Zach, th- their relationship and then chemistry, uh, you know, in the roles, I think really needed to work for the movie to be as successful and have the the funny bits land. That that needed to 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 work, and it did, and. Right from the get-go, when Freddy just, again, gets very meta, then he starts talking about social media and all the names they start giving Shazam and all these things. It's really funny, but it's also, again, like I said, very sharp. It's witty humor. And having that training montage that we see a bit of in the trailer, I think that's really well done because it plays in the social media. Interesting choice. In the trailer, they used Kendrick Lamar's Humble for the song, but in the movie, it's actually Queens Don't Stop Me Now. I'm wondering if that was a late change, given the Bohemian Rhapsody queen has never been hotter buzz who knows but yeah i think really and you know actually even backing up even further the way they set up dr shivana the wizard shazam but the gentleman Hanchu plays i actually thought that that worked well it was effective enough for villain motivation and also a cool prologue where you know this is a pg-13 film but i mean there's still some some fairly dark moments for a movie that also has plenty plenty of laughs so yeah i, I really think the first two acts are, are, are pre- pre- pretty tight and like Mark Strong, I've always liked Mark Strong as a performer, even though he's relatively typecast as a villain, apart from like the Kingsman movies. But the Doctor, he he was good enough. It's kind of like um, the Ant Man two villain, the Ghost, like did what it needed to do, didn't really get in the way, but didn't really light things up. I thought the Seven Deadly Sins in particular were just kind of uh, annoying, just because it's hard to tell them apart. Like I wasn't really sure who most of them were besides the obvious ones. Like, Oh, gluttony's the big fat guy. I got that one. Overall. I think most of the, most of the the first two acts are really sharp, really uh, tight. So that's the strength. I think those were most of the rewatchable scenes would be as well. What about you? What what stood out to you? No, the, the training montage, I think was an obvious high note. And I also really like how they basically made this like modern day big, you know, where it's like mm. he's a, not I, like just the fact that he, he becomes a superhero and like he's finally like, oh, yeah, like, OK, I'm, I'm an adult man in this body. He's like, oh, let's go try to buy beer. And like that whole mm. sequence of them in the convenience store, I thought was you don't have a fake ID. <laughs> yeah, man, I am the ID. Like, so <laughs> good. <laughs> I'd like to buy your finest beer, please. <laughs> yeah, OK, just so good. Um, And also just his reaction when he finds out uh, that he's bulletproof. And he's like, so good. Yeah, just perfect. <laughs> and Zachary Levi, I mean, I, I can't say enough about he was perfectly cast for this, which I never would have expected. But I guess it's like similar to, uh, I don't know, like Chris Pratt, you know, like mm-hmm. I never would have expected him to be a star like this. But he really brought that like childish air to the the character that you, you needed. Like you couldn't have put like Chris Pine or Chris Evans or even like Hemsworth, I think would have been difficult to see but levi had just this like innocence to him that i think would have been really good i guess maybe hemsworth could have brought that because i think thor has an innocence to him that but overall just he was fantastic one of the scenes really stood out yeah the seven deadly sins like i said tough hang at times i agree it was was hard to tell them apart and they actually i think even kind of nodded at this when zachary levi's like Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) he's like i thought she's gonna be way way better like it was like i forgot what that one is like seduction or whatever Mm -hmm. Lust, maybe. Yeah, lust. I thought she was gonna yeah. be way more attractive than it was. <laughs> right. Like such a good call out. And yeah, I also I also really did like the part at the end when the family gets the powers. Like I thought that was a cool like 
twist to all of it and how they kind of mm-hmm. brought them in together. And I also think that gives a lot of opportunity for like the future films, which I mean, do we want to yeah. talk about the post credit scene with the, the evil caterpillar? Oh, uh, what's it called? Um, mind mr mind is what is what he's called getting weird man i don't <laughs> care go for it man that's cool yeah um honestly before, before we get to the future i saw this criticism going around some people didn't mind it some people did point it out though so asher angel when he when he plays normal billy pretty stoic maybe a little wise beyond his years young teen right or preteen right it's a, it's a more measured performance, whereas Jack Grazer's Freddy is is a more energetic performance. But then when Billy Shazams into Zachary Levi, it almost seemed like he got more childish, almost more immature. But then when we go back to Asher's Billy, we don't get that anymore. Some people thought that they just didn't sync up enough. Hmm. I didn't notice it watching the movie, thinking about it. I guess it makes sense in times, but I also feel like if you get to become this ridiculously uh, invincible adult all of a sudden, yeah, maybe your personality changes a bit. I don't know. It didn't bother me. But did you notice that? I think it, I, I mean, it was something I think I thought about for one second, but then I rationalized it by if I was a unhappy 14-year-old kid and then I had the ability to shoot lightning out of my hands and I was all of a sudden making money and had all these opportunities, I would probably be a lot happier in that sense. So right. I think like his childishness and like that wonder can it makes sense when you really think about it. But it's a, I guess a fair criticism, but man, you're really like picking, a, picking nits there, I feel yeah. like. It doesn't, doesn't break the movie or anything, just yeah. an observation people have. What do you want to see from a future Shazam movie? Well, the thing is, I don't know how soon we're getting a future Shazam movie just the way DC's moving these days. Like, Aquaman 2 immediately greenlit uh, the success of Aquaman. Again, Aquaman made $1.1 billion, the biggest DC movie ever, bigger than any of the Nolan movies. But Aquaman 2 is coming out December 2022, four years after the first Aquaman. And they kind of already have their slate. So it's like we got Birds of Prey and Wonder Woman 1984 for next year, 2020. 2021, we have The Batman for Matt Reeves. And then the Suicide Squad, the James Gunn Suicide Squad sequel. That's 2021. The Flash is nebulously slated for 2021 right now. We know there's talk about the script and perhaps Ezra Miller would leave the role because he wants to do it darker than DC wants to do. And I think DC ultimately needs to keep this forward momentum going. And, you know, you, you can replace Ezra Miller. I don't think that's a, a deal breaker by any stretch. But either way, that that's, you know... The, that that's nebulous and then 2022 we have one movie at the end of the year man of steel sequel no sign of that blue beetle was recently talked about no date no no, no information so when would shazam 2 come out maybe 2022 early 2022 i guess that's possible the, th- the thing about this was this was a relatively cheap superhero movie it was like under 100 million dollars for the budget it was like logan money a little more than deadpool so the fact that it had a modest opening weekend didn't really matter because it's a doesn't have a high bar to be a financial success so less effects make it faster it still seems like it's far away which i don't know don't maybe you want to capitalize on the momentum who can say but yeah i i think keeping the cast of the kids with their powers i think you gotta keep that involved at least to a certain extent maybe have them in bit roles because we don't really recognize any of those actors but with mr mind it sounds i mean he's like one of the big shazam nemesis i mean i feel like we could go in any direction but i mean do you have any thoughts on where you'd want to go because this or this is more of a traditional origin of sorts. We had fish out of water. We had a lot of common tropes we see in hero stories. And now for the sequel, there's a lot of potential. So what would you want to see? Well, in terms of when the next Tuesday movie will come out, um, if they want to use the kids still, they need to do it fairly mm. soon because those kids aren't going to look like they do in the next two Good point. years. However, there there was talk when we first talked about the DC movie verse uh, back, I think, in 2016. Yeah, that's been 2016 of a Black Adam movie. And he's uh, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And I'm sure at that point, they'll probably pull some of these characters back in. Maybe not all of them, but I could definitely see uh, definitely um, Asher and Glazer, uh, as well as uh, Levy and Adam Brody seems. I mean, out of all those like grown up Shazams, uh, Adam Brody is probably the only recognizable one uh, outside mm-hmm. of Zachary Levi, obviously. So I could see them kind of teaming up and doing something. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I don't really have an idea of, of, I guess, where Shazam is going to go, but I do think we'll see it sooner rather than later. 
and most likely probably centered around Dwayne Rock Johnson. So I, and I'm cool with that. You know, if they have to make Black Adam team up with them in some sense to like take out Mr. Mind, like that could be a pretty cool premise. So all for yeah. it. Yeah. But shout out we'll DC, if... right? Yeah. Right in the ship, man. Good for them. Game of Thrones. Let's do it. Season eight. Man, I am so ready for this. Have you been rewatching it all? Yep, I've been hitting those YouTube clips. Boy, are most of the scenes on YouTube. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've watched a couple episodes here and here and there. Yeah, I've been listening to a couple of uh, binge modes, trying to of course. recap some of it. Shout out Jason and Mal. And shout out Emmy Award nominated Jason. Uh, of course. It's crazy. Yeah, so Game of Thrones. I mean, first, this is been talked about in the big conversation is how this is probably the last season of monoculture tv that there's not going to be a show like game of thrones that everybody will have to watch to avoid spoilers Uh, to to some extent i agree with that and to another extent i say before game of thrones i don't i think people kind of said like oh breaking bad gonna be the last type of show like this and i feel like if a show is good enough and it can get big enough this can definitely happen you know lord of the rings if it ends up being what people think it's going to be has a i think has a real shot at being this again but for the foreseeable future and for the predictable future i think it's fair to say this probably is the last one for the, what we can actually predict what do you think yeah well, i think the key here is that the delivery method of television has largely changed stranger things would be one of these shows it's so popular it's mm-hmm. so big on the internet multi-generational the problem is when netflix blows the whole load with the whole season on the same day People watch at different paces, websites, way how to cover something all at once like that just doesn't happen. It just shows a shorter life. No one's watching at the same time. Amazon also releases shows that way. Will they release Lord of the Rings week to week? I really hope they do. But if they don't, it's really hard to see, see it reaching that point. So that's the case. HBO is really the only an FX, I guess. I mean, people tune in to watch Atlanta week to week, Killing Eve week to week. But those shows are nowhere near big enough to get this kind of label so i think it really ultimately depends on netflix apple amazon how they choose to deliver their biggest shows because those are the shows that will have the opportunity to have enough eyeballs to hold this title gotta wait and see honestly the thing about shows like atlanta or even killing eve um is that those stories just are not the size that game of thrones is mm-hmm. like martin has just created this uh, incredible expansive very rich universe that ties in so many different storylines with so many characters that people connect with or care about which it's hard to do on tv because you know unless you have a, <clears throat> a network like hbo amazon that's really investing you know if it's cable tv you're not getting you know a five season deal to build a story up you know if, if you don't get this thing off the ground within season one and i, I think game of thrones if people had, were just like hey one season let's see how it goes wouldn't have even gotten to this point because i think season one moves a little slow at points i think people would have checked out but then you have that huge payoff at the end of the season you're just like okay i'm in like fantastic i don't know where where does this rank in like your all-time tv oh that's a good question yeah see the thing is i haven't watched a lot of the pantheon golden age shows i've started a few of them but i haven't finished the wire or Mad Men or deadwood i'm gonna watch deadwood very soon honestly once i finish beep (laughs) But I haven't seen a lot of these exalted shows. And like a show like The Simpsons, like MASH, mm-hmm. Twilight, those wouldn't like do it for me. So up. I, is Game of Thrones my favorite show ever? Yeah, I, it might be. It's definitely the show I've invested the most time, brain power into. It's, it's a great question. It's, I mean, it's, it was it, for me, it's probably Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad mm-hmm. are probably the, the, the best. Sh- and uh, Leftovers, I guess, is certainly right there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's between those three for me. I hope Watchmen's amazing. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> I have high hopes for Watchmen. Yeah, I think Breaking Bad for me is just a little bit higher. I think there's also some nostalgic factors for me with that about how like it was just a show that nobody knew about and then everybody caught up and then it was literally like you get together to watch it with your buddies. One of the first true Netflix bumps where yes. Netflix cultivated and maintained a cable audience for sure. Yeah, and I, I really love The Wire. The The writing on that show is just out of this world. It would probably, Game of Thrones is probably number three for me um, behind those two, but I mean, those those three, it's a 
Mount Rushmore. And then there's, you know, I think Leftovers even as a step below um, just in terms of scale of the show and, you know, the fact that it was very up and down in the first season and until the second For season. For sure. And I also haven't seen Sopranos, so that's another one that's TBD. Same for me. I haven't seen Sopranos. That's That would probably be up there from what everybody says. But yeah, so this is really a show that is important to the culture, a show that we might never see the size, you know, have, have the influence that Game of Thrones has had. So we're left here with season eight, the second season where we don't know really what happens because the books haven't been written yet. You know, this is third third season, actually. Oh, is it? I forgot. Season six was off book two. The books, spoilers for where the books end, if you care, I guess. But the books end with John getting yopped in the chat, the stump, the, the gut. <laughs> and Danny's still in Essos. There's a war with the slavers going on. Uh, Tommen didn't die. Like the whole like Cersei blowing up the sept, John getting resurrected. All of that hasn't happened in the book. Mm-hmm. So seasons six, seven, and now eight are just off the George outline that he gave to Benioff and Weiss and then whatever Benioff and Weiss decide to do. So we're, we're really kind of going in and people, I think, have a general sense of where things are going. So season season seven left off with, you know, we find out that John is a Targaryen, um, you know, Aegon Targaryen. He's the son of Aegon and Lyanna, which, I mean, you couldn't give him a different Rhaegar. Rhaegar, sorry. Uh, but anyways... So we got this Targaryen plotline, you know, now he's boning his, his aunt, who is Danny. You know, they they, <laughs> yep. make, they make this pact. They're going back down to Winterfell. You know, they, they escape the White Walkers, all that jazz. Meanwhile, the Night King just like taking down the wall with his ice dragon that he resurrected from the dead. We got Sansa and Arya in Winterfell. They kill Littlefinger, you know, with Bran. They all kind of team together, the Stark kids, that feel-good story. But John's coming down with Danny. You got Jamie leaving, uh, Cersei, who might may or may not be pregnant. There's a lot going on here, man. I guess maybe where what storylines or what are you most excited for for this season? Well, technically, John and Danny are coming up from King's okay. Landing to the north. They're not coming back down from the wall. Get your geography, your Westeros maps in order, sir. <laughs> no, I mean, the thing about season season eight is that the story, the geographic location, most of the characters were just very condensed. We've never really been this before, right? Danny and John are together. All of their compatriots are together, right? So soon we're going to, I mean, and co- coming with this is a lot of like reunions that have, haven't happened and several seasons or perhaps the whole length of the show basically are about to happen because everyone's just getting back into the same place for the first time right but i mean if you think about like the stories we have cersei is back in king's landing some place she hasn't left since the very beginning of season one and she's there with kyburn the mountain kyburn went off (laughs) kyburn euron went off to get the golden company across the narrow sea we assume daria will come back with him right Yep. And then other than that, we have the Night King, the White Walkers, the Whites, Viserion, Ice Dragon, Beyond the Wall, Tormund and Beric are running towards Winterfell, and in Winterfell, John, Danny, Tormund, Brienne, Bran, Arya, Sansa, Jamie's on his way, he'll probably get there soon, Tyrion, all of Danny's people, Davos, everyone is basically in Winterfell, right? And seeing I'm just really curious to see how we start off the season because like there's a lot of speculation that uh episode three will be the battle of winterfell when uh night king and crew do some siege blast right through the place who knows right but i'm really curious to see like what like what kind of threads get set because the peel of thrones for years now has always been that palace intrigue right and i don't think this shows the season is just going to be one continuous battle Hmm. so Though whatever like remaining threads they have are set up, probably a lot of it will be from Cersei. But if there's any tension with people at Winterfell, I'm just really curious to see what, like where it goes, because we'll probably get a sense of, of of you know that story soon, because you know the battle's on its way. So, what about you? What are you thinking for the beginning of the season? Uh, I mean, it seems like the first episode has to be John and Danny meeting with uh, Sansa, Arya, and Bran how they work all that out and all those dynamics. And then pretty quickly, John's going to have to be like, yo, there's an ice dragon coming. 
and we got to figure out how we're going to fight these guys. They're going to have to figure out uh, weapons pretty quickly, so Gendry's going to be like working double time uh, get, get those <laughs> weapons out. They have to find a lot of Valerian steel or dragon glass. So that ain't like, happening. Yeah, so <laughs> it's the dragon glass. Yeah, that dragon glass uh, going to be essential. So I think by episode two we'll probably get into the battle, and then it's going to be kind of about um, I think how things play out from there. And I'm really interested to see because I think if we're getting the battle that early in the season, it's either going to condense the showdown pretty quickly to just the main characters that they want the story to be about or it's going to be like part one of a larger to come battle later on in the season between the white walkers which i can't really imagine the white walkers retreating so i have to imagine that they're if, if they're leaving winterfell in some sort then they would be going down to cersei which doesn't make sense so not really sure how it, how it yeah. plays out yeah just the whole plotting i how Cersei factors in, I think, is really like the X factor of sorts and trying to guess what happens with the plot because we don't expect her to send the Golden Company to help, right? We don't expect that to happen. There's no reason to believe Cersei will see the, the logic for once, right? now. No way. So is she going to send the Golden Company to sabotage the, 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 the good people, Danny and John's crews? Or maybe wait for the battle to happen and then go after whoever wins? I just can't see the Golden Company hanging out in King's Landing waiting. Cersei will probably wait. Well, she's still in this the whole time. But I, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what, 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 what does Cersei have left to do to die. besides get killed? Yeah, but at, at Jamie's right. hand, right? Valencore, baby. Do you think she's pregnant? I mean, what would your guess be? So yeah, that's 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 like some of the famous like Vegas prophecy you got is is Jamie or is Cersei pregnant and also is Danny pregnant? John, of course. Danny is um, beyond pregnant. Though. I think I'm gonna go Danny. Yes, Cersei. No, we'll say Cersei lied. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think. I think there's Cersei and Jamie. They're supposed to be like around like forty. Um, at least in the book they are. So I don't know. I mean, she's probably not that fertile, right? It's probably not that that easy. Such an incest baby. I don't know. I'm, I'm gonna say Danny. Yes, Cersei. No. Are we sure it would even be Jamie's though? Oh, I mean, well, well, who who else would it be? Do we have a name for anyone? Oh, Lan- it's not Lancel. No, no, no. It would gone too long. It would be the it would be the oh, god the guy Euron the Euron Greyjoy. Oh, Euron. <sighs> yeah, it, it, it's tough to pull off making Euron truly that important right at the end. I I don't know about that. I feel like Euron's just kind of a means to an end. Yeah, I'm gonna say no. But John and Danny joining up and having a new Tar Targaryen baby. Feels like everyone's kind of in that boat, but there's got. I mean, another thing is obviously in the beginning, uh, John needs to be told by Sam and Bran that he is in fact the true heir. He's a legitimate Targaryen mm-hmm. from Rhaegar and Lyanna, so he's both Ice and Fire. He's both Stark and Targaryen. Yada yada. Th- that that needs to be established early. But yeah, in terms of in terms of his kid, I mean, I'm. I feel like, like what do we care about the, these unborn babies right now? I mean, we got more important things to worry about, you know? <laughs> right. And I feel like that's the attitude. I mean. Speaking, and we already got some born kids. We got fucking baby Sam, man, from Gilly. Keep that guy alive. We'll worry about the pregnant kids when they're born. <laughs> you know, the characters I think I find mo- most interesting are the ones that are maybe the um, the peripheries right now of, of the main sure. group. You know, Arya. We don't really even understand how her faceless people uh, magic works. Uh, I'm really interested to see how that kind of plays into this season. Mm-hmm. You know, because you, you have the whole thing where she she actually turned into Walder Frey, like voice and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. But then other times doesn't do that. So I'm really interested to see how that really plays into the season because Arya just kind of feels like she's just going to be kind of chilling, going to kind of be fighting out there using needle. But I'm not really sure how she plays into the whole dynamics. She's not going to rule. You know, it's going to be between Sansa mm-hmm. and John and Danny, that whole struggle there. Bran, yep. Bran is also interesting, you know, whether you fall into the brand the builder or brand as the night king or uh there's a lot of different theories out there about brand but he also seems like what is his you know role gonna be in a lot of this. yeah the thing about aria in in the trailer and there's only that one real trailer we don't see a whole lot but big chunk of it is honestly aria looks a little bruised but she has like looks like she has like legitimate fear she's running from something perhaps in winterfell tough to really say and try to think like what would cause that in her because at the end of the day she's a fucking stone cold killer so much so the fact that most of her 
compatriots don't even know the extent of it. Um, so what it kind of leads into, is there something in the Winterfell crypt? There's talk that there's a dragon under there that's been heating the springs. I think that's, I don't think we're going to get that. Maybe that happens in the books, who knows? The Great Other, I don't know. Or maybe she sees Rhaegar's harp and runs away in terror. I, I, who, who knows? But the fact that she's like legitimately scared of something, which is very unlike Arya in general, uh, it's definitely something to think about. But obviously you mentioned Bran. I mean, Bran truly is the just the big question mark for what, what all this because they've established that he can, as a three-eyed raven, can cross dimensions, go back in time in sorts, right? We know that he fucked up and basically made Hodor into who he was. We also know that when he went and saw the Tower of Joy scene happen, Ned heard him say something in the wind, right? So we know that he can influence the past. And as you mentioned, is he is like Bran, or all the past brands, like Bran the Builder, Bran and Stark, was Bran, our Bran actually influencing that somehow? Was he doing it in a bad way? He make the Mad King right. go mad? Who Like, you can take it any way you want. You can talk yourself into basically anything. But figuring out what exactly is going on with Bran and how he is going to influence what you know, the final the final story is a huge question. I mean, like one of the big reunions we're going to get, assumingly, because they'll be in the same place, is Jamie and Bran, two people that haven't met since episode one when Jamie pushed Bran out a window. Right. But Bran, through his character now, will probably be like, that's okay, man. This was supposed to happen. It got me to where I am now, where I can see everything so yep. brand big x factor for sure yeah you know i'm just kind of looking here uh at, at some of the characters i guess uh maybe this is a good time to talk about who we think will come out of the season and who we think is destined to not make it out i mean why don't we just start with the big ones danny and john are they making it out danny lives john dies is what i'm going with john wants to die like he just does not want to be exactly. alive anyway so He'll be dead, yeah. Danny, I think, definitely will. Will she be on the Iron Throne? I think, well, I think that's a separate question. Definitely. We'll talk about that after. Okay, so we'll put that in um, pause. Sansa? Sansa, I, I think she makes it out. She, she's Same. a survivor, bro. Like, There's no way she's, yep. she's going to not make it out. What about Arya? I'm going dead. No. Did you see the whole thing with Maisie Williams and Jimmy Fallon? Like, the, Oh, I did not. Oh, there was an April Fool's Day thing where he was interviewing her, and like she like lets it slip like, yeah, when Arya dies in episode two, and then she's like, and it was like a whole like April Fool's Day thing. But I'm wondering if maybe it's not an That's April funny. Fool's Day thing. We'll see. If Arya dies, I mean, that would be that'd be a tough one. Cause I feel like she's a, a big fan favorite for sure. She is. Bran, he he lives, right? Yeah, yeah, because he he just he's an all all seeing all all whatever warging power. Tormund gone, gone is fucking yesterday bro he's dead <laughs> what, what about what about brienne though so i think there's like a bunch like there's, a, there's a big group of people that you can pretty confidently write off and they're yeah. of that character yeah. weight so Tormund and barrett we assume they'll escape the wall get back to winterfall winterfell then they'll die i throw jorah in that mix i throw theon in that mix Euron in that mix mm -hmm. jamie and cersei i assume they kill each other like the valancourt theory but i think they both don't make it dario if he comes back will die uh, Melisandre, if she comes back, Dead. has like five people that want to fucking murder her, right? <laughs> the Mountain and the Hound. I assume Clegane happens and they kill each other. You think so? I think so. I, I Well, at least the the Hound kills the Mountain, but I feel like the Hound has been through a lot. He'll finally rest. I, I really think they both die. Maybe it's Jamie and the Hound go on a, a murder mission down south. I, who knows? But I really think most of these ancillary characters are going to die. I think a few of them will probably survive. Perhaps Davos and Varys. I mean, again, some of these people will live, probably. Bronn. I go either way on Bronn. I feel like Bronn's such a popular character. He's a, he's a bigger role than he ever had in the books. Apparently, they keep Bronn. But Brienne. I think Brienne's a great one because that you can see Brienne influencing things with Jamie. And I'm leaning. I'm bleeding. Brienne dies. Yeah, I, I don't think any of those like middle characters are, have a very good shot of making it out this season. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting thing and is, or the interesting person maybe I didn't hear you mention was Tyrion. Because Tyrion, really, I'm not sure how he factors in other than being just a fun character at this point because he doesn't really have a shot at getting any chance to rule. He's an advisor. Yep. Um, and I guess, like, we'll have to vouch for Jamie, who I, I don't think will have trouble you know, getting accepted into fight against the White Walkers anyway, since he's basically coming to do so. Yep. So I'm not really sure what Tyrion does, and 
I, you know, as an early season fan favorite, he's kind of been phased out over the last couple of seasons. So I think I could see him getting back pretty early on. Yeah, that's a good question and a good point because, yeah, as you mentioned, the best Tyrion stuff is in the beginning when he's in King's Landing, fucking being awesome. Yep. Once he became uh, subservient to Danny in a certain extent, he has less influence and thus less to do, less lines. And again, if we think this battle of Winterfell, at least his first main conflict, happens early, it's not just going to be the fighters that die, we assume, right? Like again, throughout Jorah, Tormund, Barrett. We assume a lot of those guys probably get killed in that original fight. But could Tyrion get killed there? I mean, I don't know. Tyrion getting killed early, tough. But at the end of the day, it's been on I just seven plus seasons already. He's been a regular the whole time. I guess you can kill anyone at any time at this point. Um, yeah, I just don't see Yeah, what... it's a good point, though, because like, what's Tyrion going to be doing? He's just going to be helping strategize if there is much strategizing to do. I feel like the true strategy in terms of what they can accomplish will probably come from Bran because he's just going to reveal things to everyone. Yeah. Or Sam digging in the scrolls. I I just don't know what Tyrion can do to push the story at this point. Uh, There was a theory, I think, a couple seasons back where Tyrion might have been, you know, a a Targaryen and... He was going to oh, ride yeah. one of the A lot dragons. of book evidence for and, it. And maybe that will happen in the books. But at this point, if that came out this season, that would be a huge twist that seems unearned in a, in a yeah. lot of senses. I don't really see it happening. And even if it was, I mean, you have to assume Danny and John are going to be the ones riding dragons if, if John decides to do that um, instead of having Bran just warg into it or whatever happens with that. But Danny rides uh, Drogon, obviously. John rides Rhaegal. Do you think. Bran tries to warg into Kings? Ghost Viserion, Ice Viserion. I mean, that that'd be pretty awesome. But do you think both happen? Do you think the Bran wargs into one, John rides one? Do you think they both happen or just one? The see the warging thing is tough, just because um, you know if if you're gonna give the Night King this weapon, and then pretty much Bran's just like, ah, nope, I'm gonna take that away. It's like, ah, okay, so maybe this isn't gonna be as much of a battle as we thought. We're gonna have three dragons just wiping out these. Guys, although I guess the Night King can just take him out with one javelin throw anyway, without even a step. Dude's got like the the craziest arm of all time. Put him and Judge, <laughs> like him and Judge and Vladimir Guerrero having like uh, a throwing from the outfield like contest. Dude, I just want to see it. Yeah, so I don't know. I just feel like they can't take the Ice Dragon away that quickly as a weapon. Whatever manifestation of Brand's powers, whether it's interdimensional or just warging. Uh, and I say just warring F is just some throwaway thing. But like, I feel like that's not going to happen right away, certainly not in that first conflict. So I feel like the Night King and Viserion and all his army will wreck plenty of shop before Bran potentially reigns on his parade. But the Night King is a villain that comes in very slowly played, right? Doesn't speak, he's dull in a sense, unclear motivations beyond just turning everyone into a white. But we do know that through Bran's time traveling, he basically allowed the Night King to go through the uh, Three-Eyed Raven's hut beyond the wall with the Children of the Forest, right? Whether I don't really ascribe to Bran being the Night King, but their connection, whether it's just something in their minds, whatever that is, you feel like has to come into play somehow just because we got so much of that. And Bran was a character that felt very ancillary for a lot of the show because, I mean, he literally takes a season off. Though when Isaac hadn't said right comes back to play, I mean he'd already hit puberty and grow grow like six inches. But I I just don't think they'll they'll, they'll fumble the ball with Bran at this point. They've definitely thought about it enough to have a plan for him. I'm just you can again you can talk yourself into basically anything. Winterfell has to fall, right? Yeah, I think Got so. It. Because it, even just, just looking here, it seems like you know there's six episodes a season. The first two are only an hour, then the last four are eighty minutes long. So that means that there's big stuff coming in those episodes, and if if the Night King is just going to get like shot down in the second episode, nah, I, I can't see it happening. He's got to, he's got to at least take that battle and kind of build the, the the climax to the end of the season. Probably right. the, the penultimate episode would be the the final battle with that. Yeah, so we we kind of put it on hold. But what about this this throne talk? Is there going to be an Iron Throne mm-hmm. at the end, Dave? What do you what do you think? Yeah, so I've been talking a lot with a friend of the show. Adam Mahalik, and he's thrown out this kind of like United Nations of sorts, independent constituencies, all the different kingdoms, right? Woodrow Wilson, shout out our guy. 
Yeah, well, the League of Nations first, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we've mentioned that on the pod before. <laughs> so call back uh, to the deep <laughs> listeners for sure. That's one option. The other one is just very traditional. I'm, I'm going with John as fucking as dead as can be so that it would just be Danny. Does Danny just sit on the, the throne? Does Danny give in to her mad queen tendencies? And does nothing really happen? It's like, you know, or do they truly break the wheel and go, no throne? I don't know, man. Just because what, I, mean, I know what I like to see, and I also know that what I think the show would do. And I'm kind of leaning towards they don't melt the throne down, and Danny just is at the end, at, on the, the throne at the end. And time is but it would be really cool circle. if they kind of just branched off and had like, and the Stormlands, Gendry Baratheon, you know, like in the North, Sansa Stark, you know, it'd be really cool if they had all these different areas truly autonomous, but I'm going to say just Danny at the top. I-, I could see that and it would be really interesting if she does, like, she is like the Mad Queen at the end and it's basically just like this whole like revolving door of things happening over and over again. That's like the whole yep. point of this, like you have this epic story that just ends in perpetuation. Although right. as you were as you were talking, I, this kind of played out a theory because one of the major themes has been uh, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Right, that's been the whole thing with with the Starks. And I I wonder if you know maybe John dies in like episode you know penultimate episode episode five. Danny kind of goes a little crazy. You know that now that her lover slash king is dead. You know her her baby's father's dead. Going, she's that mad queen. Sansa Stark, Arya, and Bran team up together again. Take down the Mad Queen, then they rule all together. I mean, that that would be that whole like pack survives, <laughs> but Lone Wolf does. Just uh, that that's a crazy theory. I just want to get out there. It doesn't cost me anything, so if I get a rail, just call back and say I'm the smartest person in the world. Right. <laughs> I just don't know if we have enough real estate to introduce the Mad Queen truly and then resolve it like that. You know, I just think it's an endpoint only option. But yeah, I think there's only truly a few options. John, Danny, Sansa, Night King, they all die. Um, I don't think Cersei's a real option. Tyrion, no. That's it. There's yeah. no one else. Yeah. So I think it's really just more the existential questions of if they maintain the the monarchy and truly maintain the dynasty with having new Targaryens on the throne again um, after the Baratheons. Or they truly try and break the wheel and change things. It's or Game does, of Thrones. It's tough. It's tough to predict something too rosy. Or does Gendry end up on the throne, the rightful heir to the throne? Is he the rightful heir though? Because he is a bastard. Like he has That's a good true. claim, but I guess he had a better claim than Joffrey did because Joffrey literally wasn't his son. Yeah. Interesting. Tough question. <laughs> yeah, there's a, and we'll be talking about it for sure. Um, any any last predictions or anything you want to throw out there for the season? Oh, um, Theon. I'm going with Theon dies. What about yeah. you? Oh, dude. Deader than dead. He'll, kind he'll of thought he was dead last life. season, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, it, the thing about Theon is that you just keep want You keep, see these glimpses of him doing these things that are like redeemable. You're like, yes. And then he just like immediately undoes it. And you're like, okay, just go die somewhere, dude. Yeah. Any, anything else? I think we're good on that. I wanted to shout out this Twitter poll from uh, at Rejects, the Neil who runs One Perfect Shot in filmschoolrejects.com. And he tweeted back on the third, so like a week long poll. If you only could choose one, Game of Thrones season eight or Avengers Endgame, and currently with one day left in the poll, sixty five thousand votes, Game of Thrones season eight has sixty seven percent of the vote. Yeah, and that is what I voted for. That's what I would vote for too. Yeah, Game of Thrones by mile. Just a, a quick <laughs> update as we finish up this episode. While we were recording, it was announced that a Shazam sequel is in the works. With Henry Gaiden, the uh, writer, back penning the script, so um, we will we will be seeing that Shazam sequel sooner rather than later for sure. Um, anyways, it's gonna wrap it up for us this week. What we got next week, Dave? So next week is big once more. Where are my notes? They're over here. Uh, Anderson Pack, Ventura. Yes, no. Right after Oxnard, very very soon. Curious to see. I mean, so far the singles are much more soulful than uh, Oxnard, so looking forward to that for sure. It's going a little bit further up north in California. Also, Intellectual, this new debut project from Nate Fox and Nico Segal, uh, collaborators with Chance the Rapper. You've certainly heard them on songs before. Also, um, 
LSD is dropping their long, long-awaited question mark album. That's a uh, Labyrinth, Sia, and Diplo. They've released like half this album as singles already, so you probably know what it's going to sound like. Uh, Fosse Verdon premieres yeah. on Wednesday. Excited for that on FX. That's uh, Sam Rockwell and Joe Williams. Oh, yeah. Won't get nearly as much buzz as uh, Thrones, of course, but still a show you should not be missing out on. And then uh, Hellboy comes out, and uh, we'll see how that does. And hopefully High Life gets into wide release soon. Oh, and uh, BTS is dropping an EP. Lot, lot, lot to consume, like usual. And we will be consuming it, so hit that subscribe. Uh, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and follow us everywhere that you want to listen to us. We'll catch you next week. Game of Thrones! Yeah.